So as we've been walking through um, books of the Bible here in Sunday school class, uh, we've seen kind of this general storyline develop that God is uh, calling to himself a particular people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. They were to be a blessing to the whole world. And one of their, one of Abraham's offspring, this future figure, would be a blessing to the nations. Um, in the last book of the Bible, in Judges, we saw that plan kind of take a big pause while God's people were reckless and disobedient. Um, and here in Ruth, we're going to learn that even in the time of the Judges, this kind of horrible period of Israel's history, God was still working behind the scenes. That he was still, uh, he was still carrying this plan forward in kind of the smallest, most kind of small town ways. So this is the book of Ruth. And um, there are uh, a couple of things in this story. This is a very masterful story. Uh, if you, I'd encourage you guys, if you haven't read the book of Ruth, go home, do it today. It's only four chapters. It's a quick read, but it's a masterful, enjoyable story. It has a happy ending, um, all those good things. But uh, there are two ways, typically, that stories uh, teach truth. So when you read a biblical story, so like when you read um, books in the Bible that talk a lot about people, so great examples of that would be the book of Genesis or book of Ruth or First and Second Samuel that focus on these figures. Uh, a great thing to read or a great thing to think about are what happens to the characters in the story. So we've got three main characters in Ruth. Uh, first is Naomi, and her story begins in tragedy. We'll talk about that. Uh, then we have Ruth, who is this faithful foreigner. She's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite, but she's very faithful uh, to Naomi. And... Uh, does a lot of bold things in this book. And then we have Boaz, who is this uh, faithful man who, uh, at a cost to himself, chooses to provide for Naomi and Ruth. Uh, so that's the first way, characters. The second way, when we read stories, is the plot. And uh, Ruth is this book that is structured in a symmetrical way. So uh, the first parts parallel the last part of the book. The middle parts parallel. So the book begins in chapter 1 with tragedy and death. We'll read it. But basically, Naomi loses everything. Um, the second part of the book, we see that Ruth is faithful to Naomi. At a cost to herself, she commits herself to help Naomi. There are two episodes in the middle of the book, chapters 2 and 3, that talk about Ruth and Boaz and how they meet and how God kind of arranges the circumstances and their interactions and this bold proposal in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 4, notice, um, just like Ruth was faithful to Naomi, Boaz will be faithful to Ruth. We'll see that. And the book ends at the opposite of where it begins, in joy and life. And so in this little story, uh, we're going to see God take evil, difficult things and make them really good things. We're going to see him make the bitter things sweet. Uh, one thing that's important that I want to talk about before we jump into this book uh, we're going to hear a little bit about how Boaz, this guy living in Israel, was a redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. And this is a little, a little difficult to understand culturally, but back in the ancient Near East, uh, women did not have the right to own property. That probably was not a good thing. Actually, it was a very bad thing, but that was how the culture was. And so God set up in Israel that um, if a husband died and did not have any children, and there wasn't a way for the woman to continue the family line and to have the, the, the property owned. Uh, God provided two things. Uh, first, 
a family member could purchase the property and redeem it so it stayed within the clan. Second, um, someone could marry a relative of the widow's deceased husband, could marry her for the explicit purpose of providing heirs for their house. That sounds strange, uh, but in a land or in a time when carrying on the family name and keeping your family's name or keeping your family's land were probably the two most important things about making life go on, it makes sense. But if you don't understand that, we can talk about it later. I'll, I'll describe it. But, but we're going to start, Ruth, by reading uh, the first chapter and then the last five verses. And um, I think that'll help us get a, a sense of how this book works and what it teaches. So first chapter and last five verses. Here we go. Chapter 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Pathrites, Pathrites, say that ten times fast, from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the one other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear you sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, kissed her goodbye. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which in Hebrew means pleasant. Call me Mara which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, 
whom the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. All right, go to chapter 4, verse 13. Just, uh, we've skipped a lot on how we get here. Just notice how different this last little section is. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for this story uh, that in many ways is complete. Thank you that we see uh, what all of our hearts long for here, a happy ending. And we just pray, Lord, that you, you would teach us and minister to us through this great little book. Help us to understand your ways. Help us to uh, have confidence. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are a Christian and you believe the Bible and what it says, believe two things that sometimes make no sense when put together. First, that God is good and kind and loving and that everything he does is good and kind and loving. And second, that God rules and is sovereign over and allows to happen everything that we experience and that occurs in our fallen world. Think about a newlywed bride who a year into marriage becomes a widow. Think about a little boy whose drug-addicted mom loses custody of him when he's two, and he bounces around the foster system for years. Think about someone whose life is actually pretty, pretty good. They've got lots of blessings, but they do not have the capacity to enjoy them. They're actually miserable and anxious in the midst of blessings. If you're a Christian and you believe the Bible and what it says, you believe that God is ruling over those things, that he's sovereign over them, and that he's being good and loving and kind in all of those things. And uh, I think that's something that is relatively easy to believe in theory, like when it's happening to other people and we're trying to process stuff like around the world or whatever, and then we get stuck in traffic on 526 or get broken up with and we're like, ah, you know? Um, pain of other people, but especially our pain has this way of revealing what we really believe about God and his rule over our lives and his character. And if we're honest, uh, typically when we experience pain, even the little ones, primarily the big ones though, um, two big questions arise in our hearts when we experience suffering or pain. And the first is, if God is good and he loves me, why would he let this happen to me? That's the first one. And second, will I ever get out of this? Will I ever find freedom from this? Is there, is there, an, is there an end in sight? 
And the book of Ruth, uh, probably my top two or three favorite books in the whole Bible, um, answers these questions. The subject of this book is God's providence. If you don't know what God's providence is, it's this uh, particularly Christian word about how God rules over all things, how he governs things, how he arranges our lives for our good. Uh, but this book describes that in God's providence, God makes the bitter things sweet. That's what God is doing uh, in his rule over the world. He is making the bitter things sweet. He is taking suffering and making it joy. He's taking pain and making it pleasure. He's taking darkness and making it light. So as we, as we go through Ruth this morning, we're going to see two things. First, that indeed God does make the bitter things sweet. And second, we'll see how God makes the bitter things sweet. So first, God makes the bitter things sweet sweet. First thing that we got to see in Ruth is the only really hard thing to see in Ruth, and that that is indeed that God gives us, even in his love, God gives us bitter things. He allows them to happen to us. Uh, The beginning of the story uh, describes first Naomi's innocence and her suffering. So look in chapter one with me. We'll be able to spend a little more time actually in the, in the, the scriptures this morning because this book is so short. Uh, but notice uh, a few things happen, in, uh, even in verse 1. We see that Naomi has, lives in the days when the judges ruled. And if you were here last week, uh, you learned that the days when the judges ruled were not very good days. They were days of disobedience, days of God's judgment being poured out in the land, days of war, days of hardship. Naomi, notice, has no control over when she lives. All right, second... In this day, there's a famine in the land, probably out of God's judgment over his people's sin, perhaps because there's war and they can't do farming, right? Again, not Naomi's fault, right? There's a, get, there's a guy in uh, Bethlehem in Judah who leaves uh, Israel and goes to Moab. That man's name is Elimelech in, chapter, or in verse 2, uh, Naomi's husband. So he makes a bad decision. Um, this is against God's will. You don't leave the promised land as one of God's people. You stay. So he leaves and goes to Moab. Uh, I think that's disobedience. And then even worse, his two Israelite sons directly disobey the Torah, uh, Melon and Chilion. They take Moabite wives. This would be forbidden. Um, And in all these things, just because of the ancient Aries culture, Naomi has no control in this. I mean, she can influence her husband probably, but she's just following along. She's drug along in this series of bad decisions. And then after everyone else makes mistakes they all die and they leave her as a widow with no sons in a foreign land with a couple of moabite daughters-in-law and um i think we just got to camp here just for a second um naomi sees something that i think would be shocking to us even in her bitterness she sees that the lord is the one who's done this three times in Ruth 1. Naomi, in this kind of tidal wave of pain, says that God is the one who's done this. Look at at verse 13 in the middle. It's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Not that things just didn't turn out, not that the devil did it, right? The hand of the Lord has done this. Happens again a couple of times, but then um, in verse 20, 
in her pain, I'm not going to say we imitate this, but uh, she says, the Almighty has done this. I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Um, just notice, there's one thing we can learn from Ruth 1. It is that sometimes, sometimes, even innocent people, even people who, who have done nothing wrong, even they, even if they love Jesus, they can be left without anything and without any answers for why. That's where the book starts. And if we are going to uh, understand our world and walk with Jesus, we've got to say that sometimes we will experience what Naomi experienced. Maybe not to this degree, but sometimes we will have things in our life that terribly hurt us and that we do not understand why they're there. And sometimes it seems like the Lord just leaves us to pick up the pieces. That was Naomi's experience. And let's, uh, let's just apply that in a couple of ways. So first, first thing, uh, this is a sidebar, okay? Um, but last week, we spent a lot of time in Judges talking about how oftentimes God will bring discipline and pain into our lives because we're disobedient. And that one of the things we've got to do is we've got to recognize sometimes pain and suffering is a result of my sin. God is teaching me through that. Uh, but here in, here in Ruth, we see something very helpful to balance that out. Uh, it says actually just sometimes that's the case. Actually, other times, many times, uh, our suffering has nothing to do with our sin. Naomi, at least from the way this passage presents her, is blameless. And so sometimes righteous people, for no reason or sometimes because they're living well, suffer. So I just say if you guys are struggling, if there's affliction in your life, and you've actually done that hard work of searching your heart and asking people uh, to tell you what really is going on in your life, asking for feedback, and uh, they don't see anything disobedient, you don't sense anything clearly rebellious, um, you may not get an answer as to why you're suffering. But here's, a, here's one thing that I think is actually helpful here. Um, we've got to learn to ex- have right expectations about life. Uh, some of the most dangerous ideas and dangerous uh, worldview and beliefs are our assumptions. Those, uh, those unexamined things that we just know are going to happen. Those ways we see life that we just assume. And one thing that all of us assume, at least, at least that I assume, and that I think a lot of people who grew up getting participation trophies and having your parents tell you you can be whatever you want to be, right, is that, uh, is that, that life's going to go well for me. As long as I don't do anything terrible, life's going to go well. I'm going to be comfortable. It's not going to be hard. I'm not going to run into stuff. And that's an assumption we carry. And uh, I think this passage, uh, this first part of this book, even though we're going to see Naomi with a grandbaby in her lap and everything restored, I think this passage helps us say we've got to have some right expectations. And especially, though, um, especially consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about, think about Jesus. He was a man, fully man, fully God. He was innocent and blameless. And Jesus' life was a series of bitter things happening to him. The 12 guys he poured his life into were consistently stubborn, did not get it, and then at the very end abandoned him. He, he was perfect, blameless, and his life led him to an execution and to shame. And all that, just consider uh, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I know that oftentimes when fiery trials come into my life, my first experience is shock or why. And I think Ruth 1 helps to say, you know what? I've got to have a category in my life for this. But uh, you know, C.S. Lewis tells this parable about a bunch of people. I'm just going to paraphrase here. Uh, a bunch of people who are living in like a Motel 6 or like a Red Roof Inn. So not a nice hotel, uh, kind of shabby. You might go there if you need to, but like, you know, it's not, it's not the place you want to go. And half the people in Motel 6 believe that they are in prison, and the other half believe they're on vacation. And he asked the question, who do you think is going to be happier? The people who think they're in prison. They're going to be like, man, we get a pool in prison? This is fantastic, you know? Like, like man, this bed is actually okay. I get a queen-size bed in prison. This is great. I might be scared about what's outside, but like, I, this just feels good. The people on vacation are like, oh, this mattress is so uncomfortable. I can't believe we're paying money for this. This is the worst vacation ever. And uh, what Lewis says is that our expectations for life will determine our experience of life. 90%, I think 90% of our experiences of life are not what happened to us, but what we expect and how we respond to what happens to us. And so even though Ruth 1, before we get to the end, is kind of a dark place, what we see here is that if we can just say, man, listen, I've got to have a category for Sunday, what, what, is, what is today's date? May, May 19th, that something really jacked up might happen to me today. And that for the, this next year, as I make plans and I pray and I think that there, there might be something go wrong that I was not expecting. That helps me prepare to live in a fallen world with joy, to not have every, everything happen to me ruin my joy. One more thing just while we're here. Um, we're not going to spend as much time in other places. Um, but I think also uh, we've got to learn how to trust the Lord when it's dark. Uh, Naomi, I don't, I don't think Naomi has this here. I, I don't think her, I don't think Ruth's uh, 1, chapter 20 is a great example to us. I don't think we should walk around asking people to call us bitter because we're so frustrated. I mean, we, we can understand her, right? We can understand that this is someone whose life is full of pain. And uh, But I would just say maybe a better place to go would be Lamentations 3. Uh, there's this, it's actually a place darker than Ruth 1, if you can imagine that. God, the, the city of God's people has been destroyed. The prophet Jeremiah has seen babies thrown over the walls by the Babylonians. And here's what Jeremiah says in Lamentation 3. He asked the Lord to remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, which are both very bitter things. And he says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. And then here's the turning point of the whole book. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If you are in a dark place and you just can't, you just have no idea what the Lord is doing, you can't figure it out, maybe what you need to do is look not at God's ways, but at God's character and God's promises. Okay, so God gives bitter things. But part two of this book shows us that God actually makes the bitter things sweet, that he actually takes the particular areas of bitterness and pain and suffering and trial, and he makes those particular things sweet. 
we'll see we'll see two kinds of sweetness. We'll see sweetness along the way, and sweetness at the end. Uh, one thing that's really cool in Ruth one is that right in the middle of Naomi's bitterness, God gives her a precious gift of a faithful friend. Uh, notice in uh, chapter one verse eight. Naomi very wisely and I think lovingly tells her two daughters-in-law to leave her. Um, Orpah and Ruth's uh, prospects going back to Israel were almost nil. Remember, it's basically illegal to marry a foreigner if you're an Israelite. So if Ruth and Orpah went with Naomi, they'd basically be saying, I'm going to be a widow forever. I'm going to be poor and forever. And so Naomi says, go. And Ruth, uh, in verse 16 and 17, gives us, this incredible pledge of loyalty. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge, even if that's as a homeless person. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, even if that's really soon. Um, And if you've never really suffered or been miserable before, um, someone, a friend who is faithful to you, in the middle of your mess is a precious gift. I think when life is good for Leland and things are going well, I don't really appreciate my friends. But when I'm a mess and my friends are faithful to me and I have nothing to give, um, all of a sudden they are these precious gifts. And so God is giving Naomi along the way these little tokens of his love. Uh, Also in Ruth 2, so as I told you guys in Ruth 2 and 3 are these episodes of Ruth and Boaz in Ruth 2, uh, Ruth and Naomi are back in Israel. They're sitting in their house, if they had a house, and they're like, all right, well, we're hungry. We don't have any land. We can't farm. So it's time for Ruth to go out and glean. And this would be this thing where Ruth will go to someone else's field, uh, basically, and beg for mercy and ask them uh, to just, can I have a few grains? Can I have enough for dinner tonight? That's what gleaning was. It was a, and the Old Testament commanded this, that, that people with fields and farms would allow this to happen. And so she, she leaves, and she basically expects maybe I'll get dinner tonight, but she happens to come upon the field of Boaz, and we'll get there in a minute, but, but uh, she actually comes home with like a Costco run bucket of food, like, like Boaz like loads her up. And uh, in the middle of this desperate need and this bitter prominence, God is showing, he's showing little tokens of his love. And again, maybe, uh, maybe you're in, a dark place and it's hard to see that but listen wherever you are today you can still enjoy creation you still probably can enjoy a meal you still have all these little gifts of God you're here this morning in corporate worship there are all sorts of little tokens of God's love to you in Christ today in the middle of your darkness but it's the end of Ruth that helps us to say that God makes the bitter things sweet uh, again, as I've said before, the ending is designed, now again, this, this story really happened, but in this author's brilliance, the ending is designed specifically to reverse all of the pain and suffering of the beginning of the book. Uh, notice, um, Naomi, uh, it's the women of the town, uh, one commentator calls them the town gossips, uh, who says, uh, who initiates that conversation where Naomi says that she's, her name is bitter. And then, In verse 14, again, the women are talking to Naomi. This time, they are talking about how good God is. And specifically, they say in verse verse 15 that this baby shall be a restorer of life 
and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I think the idea in the text is Naomi lost two sons, but in Ruth she got seven sons. That God had, had fully restored this broken part of Naomi's life. So I think, uh, I think we can say from this book that it's possible, and we'll, we have another part, but it's possible that one of the reasons right now that you're suffering, one of the reasons right now you have pain in your life, is so that in the future, in this life, you can experience greater blessing. Maybe you're lonely right now, so that companionship and fellowship will be sweeter in the future. Maybe you're struggling and wrestling through something right now so that God is making you the kind of person who can succeed and do well and be blessed in this future circumstance he has for you that could be going on. But uh, notice how the book does not just end with everybody living happily ever after. The book actually ends with David. This happens in verse 17 and verse 22. Uh, we'll just read 17 to 22. The, the women of the neighborhood gave this child a name, saying a son's been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then, kind of weirdly, we get a genealogy. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Lots of good baby names in here. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, or Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Uh, all jokes aside about these names, uh, if you were here way back in the day when we started Genesis, this actually picks up where Genesis left off. How weird is that? The whole book of Genesis is structured along the these are the generations of phrase, and the idea is God working in specific times. And all of a sudden we see here at the end of Ruth that that storyline is being picked up again. And so what we see actually, what's happened, and if you guys don't know who King David is, we'll learn about him next week, but King David was the first true king over Israel. He was a king after God's own heart. God raised him up, and he promised him that, that a, a ruler from his line would rule on the throne of David forever and bless the nations. And so all of a sudden, at the end of Ruth, with this strange little genealogy, we learn that, in fact, the reason that Naomi was bereft and had everything taken from her, and the reason Ruth had to basically risk her life in coming back with Naomi was so that they could be included in God's plan for the world. That in fact, God makes the bitter things sweet in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That it's not just that things will work out in this life. That may happen. God may do that. But primarily, what God does in the bitterness in our lives is he takes them and he makes them sweet in the kingdom. There's a lot of ways this could happen, but sometimes we've experienced that when life is great, I will not seek Jesus. When life is hard, I will desperately seek Jesus. What we may not know now is that what first, or 2 Corinthians 4 says this, our light and momentary afflictions are producing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That in fact, the things we suffer right now on the path of obedience to Jesus, that these things are actually a part of God working our glory forever. 
God makes the bitter things sweet in the kingdom. So we've seen God makes the bitter things sweet, this life and the next. Um, next, we're going to see how God makes the bitter things sweet. Um, it's actually a little complicated. Uh, recently, something happened to me that happens to me sometimes. Uh, a young adult asked me for dating advice. Uh, this, it was different, though. This time it was a, it was a, it was a girl asking me for dating advice, uh, which I don't know. Most girls don't. You guys are welcome to. I, like, I love giving David advice. Anyways, you may not like what I say, but I like giving advice. Um, but uh, here, here's, the, here's, the, here's the story. All right, she, was, um, she liked this guy and been around him, really enjoyed his company, um, was interested in being in a relationship with him. But as the girl, I think she felt rightly that it wasn't really like her place to initiate. And she was like, like, so what do I do? Do I put myself out there? Do I just like sit back, wait and pray? And the advice I gave her probably wasn't helpful, but I think it was true. I said, well, well, sort of both and sort of neither. And that's uh, <laughs> great, great advice, right? Uh, but, um, but I said to her that you should both trust and rest and live like that God is the only one who can give you a spouse. That especially in a Western world where we pick our spouses and we have to like love the person before we marry them, like that is an act of God for that to happen. God gives a spouse. But at the same time, you should act. I even said to her, in fact, you can help this guy initiate. Like, uh, like my wife did when she told me she never wanted to see me again because she was so frustrated with me. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, that actually happened. That's a part of our story. I'll tell you later. But, but notice, notice there's a tension there, right? My advice is very tense. You should live like only God can give you a spouse. But you should also help this stupid boy initiate if he won't. <laughs> right? uh, you, you trust and you act. And that's exactly what Ruth shows us. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 start with Ruth and Naomi making plans. And they end with God blessing their plans. We'll just, we'll just examine Ruth 2 and then a little bit of Ruth 3. But uh, in Ruth 2, we get, uh, we get you know, verse 2, uh, Ruth and Naomi are probably sitting there in their probably pretty shabby house, and they start to get hungry. And Ruth says, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And uh, just culturally, this is a very... Uh, not hopeless endeavor, but very maybe desperate one. Again, we're in the time of the judges. In fact, later on in Ruth 2, we learn that uh, Boaz says to Ruth, stay in my fields because in other fields you'll get assaulted. So that's the kind of time we're living in. It's chaos. People aren't following Jesus. But she says, you know what? We're hungry. I need to go gather. And uh, over and over again, the narrator in this story says that, this is, starts in verse 3, that she just happened to come to the field of Boaz, who happened to be this relative of Naomi's, who happened to be a redeemer, this guy who could really restore all of their fortunes. And uh, because Boaz has just happened to hear of Ruth and all that he did for Naomi uh, shows her great favor and provides for her. But notice, Ruth wasn't planning on going to Boaz's field. She just knew, I'm hungry, Naomi's hungry, we need some food. You know. I, I, she may have heard of the Torah where it says that, that you should be allowed to glean. That's a practice. I'm just going to go in faith. I'm going to act in faith. And then God sovereignly arranges 
her circumstances, for her blessing. Uh, Ruth 3 is even more intense. Uh, Naomi gets a little bit of food, and she starts to go for broke and says, you know what? Instead of food, why don't you marry the guy? And she proposes, <laughs> she proposes this plan. Look, look, at, uh, look at chapter 3, verse 3. All right, here's Naomi's plan. Uh, now, verse 3, wash and anoint yourself. That would be to leave her garments of widowhood, okay? Uh, make yourself available, all right? Wash and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So here's Naomi's plan. Wait till it's dark and Boaz is asleep and then lay down at his feet, which again, that's, that sounds a little scandalous to us. That would have been scandalous in their culture. But again, Ruth, Ruth's sitting there and she's thinking, this old lady is crazy. But uh, Boaz is someone who I've seen to be righteous and faithful, and he is someone who could restore all of our fortunes. And so even though this plan is very risky, like Boaz could have shamed her. He could have destroyed her reputation in the community. Even though this is risky, I'm going to do this. And the story ends with Boaz saying yes, then in chapter 4, at a great financial and personal cost to himself. It, 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 would, it, it cost him to be their redeemer. He's faithful to her. And so we see that God makes the bitter things sweet by blessing our faithful plans, by sovereignly arranging circumstances around our faithful plans. Um, and this is a really, uh, I think this is a very helpful uh, truth for us, I think, because um, we live in a fallen world, and we're sinners, and we all have things we want. And uh, I think everyone tends to fall in one of two ditches in the whole, how do I, how do I live my life to get good and get the things I want to get? Um, first is the way of self-dependence, that I'm going to get out there and get some blessing for myself. I'm going to get after it. When it doesn't happen, I'm going to worry about it and try to control things. When it does happen, I'm going I'm to be arrogant about it and say, man, I crushed this. This is the I'm going to make lemonade out of lemons even though I don't have any sugar kind of mentality. We rely on ourselves and our gifts and controlling things to get what we want. If I have a spiritual problem, I'm going to read a book about it. If I want a spouse, I'm going to just arrange everything. I'm going to read a book about dating and, and change my whole personality to get her or him. If I want a solid career, I'm going to devote my entire life to it. And this path, might a Christian might live like this. But the way they live is basically atheistic. They live life as if they provide for themselves. But the other path, right, uh, is the path of passivity. I think a lot of us fall into that too. Some of us say, well, God's sovereign good, gives good gifts. So I'm just going to sit back and wait. Uh, I'm going to wait for a sign. Um, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to assume I'm, I'm, I'm doing everything I should be. I'm not going to change my life or, or, or be uncomfortable or risk. And God will give me what, what he desires in his own timing. And this path is the one of disguised laziness or concealed fear of failure or even pride that doesn't want to risk and be hurt. Again, um, it's the path that says, I'm not going to change at all even if I want a spouse. They better like me for me. Um, it's the path that says, I can't change the fact that I've never really gotten to the habit of Bible reading and church attendance. I'm just going to wait for God to change my heart. 
And the book of Ruth says that both of those extremes are wrong. And that in fact, life and God's blessing are found in the middle. They're found when we pray and feel and think that only God can give me the desires of my heart. Only he can arrange my circumstances. Only he can make the bitter things sweet. Only he can heal my heart. At the same time, though, I'm going to live faithfully. I'm going to make plans. I'm going to risk. There are a ton of ways we could apply this. One example. Let's say you have a really rough heart issue. Something, a besetting sin that grips you. Right? This would say, listen, I'm going to recognize that I cannot heal this in my own life. I, I cannot change this. I am powerless before this. God must heal me. But I'm also going to get counseling and accountability. I'm going to tell somebody. I'm going to talk through it. I'm going to put guardrails on my life. Um, and then while we're in Ruth, a book that ends in marriage, you know, in, in dating or seeking a spouse, like I said, I, I think you've got to realize what the Proverbs say. A godly spouse comes from God. You can't earn it. You can't win it. You can't do enough right things to get it. It comes from God's hand. At the same time, if that's something you want, you are called to faithfully pursue that in the midst of all the frustrations and difficulties and, and cynicism that might come in dating in 21st century America. Um, but I think here, here's the biggest thing, because again, Ruth ultimately points us to the kingdom. It points us to David's heir who rules over God's people. If you want salvation, if you want to live forever and go to heaven, you've got to say, only God can do that. And then you believe and trust in Jesus and you follow him. There's both. If you want to see God's kingdom grown in your life, if you want to minister to other people, if you want to see him work through the lives of other people, say, only God can do that. I'm going to pray for my friends as if only God could change their hearts. And then I'm going to have that hard conversation. And I'm going, to, I'm going to initiate that relationship. I'm going to be bold with my coworker and share the gospel. So God makes the bitter things sweet by blessing our faithful plants. So uh, this book, the book of Ruth, should help our hearts have some confidence and hope and joy wherever we are. If you are in the middle of some tears, this book promises you that if you know Jesus, God is going to make them sweet, whether it's this life or the next. He's going to take the very things that are bitter in your life, that are difficult, and he's going to make them sweet in this life or the next. Every decision that you make by faith, even if you're going to make mistakes, God's going to arrange your circumstances for your blessing. But here's where I'd like to land at the end of Ruth. Um, if you love Jesus, you can't lose. It is impossible, if you know Christ, for things to ultimately go badly for you. In every area of your life, maybe your health, or your vocation, your relationships, your life with the Lord. Here are some things that can happen. The only three things that can happen. First, you could have no bitterness. Sometimes we have lives and particular areas of our life have no difficulty. That's great. Thank God for that. Enjoy that. Second, you could have bitterness that's made sweet in this life. Circumstances that get better. Or third, 
You could have bitterness now that's made sweet in the kingdom. One day you will see. One day you'll be rewarded for enduring. But notice, in each of those scenarios, whether it's not a lot of struggle, whether the struggle made good now, whether it's made good later, you can't lose. You can't miss out. If you're one of God's people, if you know Jesus, everything will be sweet for you. Live in that confidence today. Let's pray. Lord, um, we do ask that you, again, as we've, uh, as we've already heard from this book, only you can do the kind of heart transformation that we've read about here. You have to come. You have to help us um, deal with those old ways of thinking. You've got to help us put on Christ. Um, so, so do that, I pray. And, and, and Lord, give us the, the wisdom and the humility uh, to actually act, to be faithful to you. Pray that in Jesus' name.